Let us bow our hearts and minds and just lift them to the Lord. Dear Lord, I just thank you for everybody that's here. And right now I just uh, pray just open up our hearts and minds to uh, Phil's message and that we can just be receptive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, John. This Christmas season, I am focusing on one passage of Scripture from the book of Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open to the first chapter of that book. When I say I'm focusing on it, I'm not kidding. I am focused on it in our messages on Sunday morning. I'm focused on it in the devotions that I send out every day. If you're on our email list and are receiving those 25 Christmas devotions, you know that, that I am focused on this passage. It has captured my attention in the biggest of ways. This is Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18, and for this part, I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. Listen to what Isaiah says. Actually, it's God. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. Now, Isaiah writes that as a messianic prophecy. And like I said, it's actually God that said it. Isaiah is simply the one who wrote it down. But it is a messianic prophecy. The book of Isaiah is the most comprehensive book in the Old Testament regarding prophecies surrounding the coming of the Messiah. I love the way Isaiah starts, all of it. Take a look at this again, it's up on the screen. Come now, let us settle the matter. It's almost as if the Lord is saying to each one of us individually, you have to do this. No one else can do it for you. You have to do this. And when we recognize that Isaiah is setting the table for us to hear about Jesus all the way back in the Old Testament and he starts like this, he comes right out of the chute saying, what I'm about to tell you about, the things that you are about to hear, are of the utmost importance. You're going to have to settle this matter for yourself. And that's what I want us to do through this Christmas season. I want us to settle the matter. One of the best ways that we can actually do that is through the use of questions. More often than not, people believe that questioning God is wrong. It's not. Questions are a powerful tool when it comes to settling the matter of who Jesus is or settling the matter of our faith. Questions matter, and so do the answers. And it isn't enough for us to simply ask questions. We have to get quiet and still so that we can listen to the answers. How we ask, ask matters, but so does how God answers it matters, and it matters to each one of us. So let's get into the idea this morning of asking questions of God. Are you aware of the fact that the Bible itself contains a lot of questions? Have you ever noticed that as you've been reading? Has it ever caught your attention that there are a lot of questions in the Bible? Scholars have tried to figure out exactly how many there are, and they struggle with it because in the original Hebrew and Greek languages, there is no punctuation. 
And in the absence of punctuation, it is difficult to determine whether something needs a question mark or a period after it. So it leaves a, a little bit of room for those that are translating and editing to determine that. It's almost a personal opinion type thing. It's not like we can pull out portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls and start looking for punctuation and therefore have the answers that we're looking for. That's, that's not the way it works with this. So as I say, it, it requires the editors and the translators to do a little bit of work on their own to determine, is this a statement or is this a question? Now that they have done a lot of different translating and scholars have gone back through all those translations, here's what they have determined. There are roughly 3,300 questions in the Bible. 3,300. Would you have ever guessed that? Now, it may very well be that you would love to go through all 3,300 this morning. I know I would, but it is possible that the person sitting next to you doesn't want to. So we're not going to go through all 3,300. But let me just give you a sampling today. I'm going to show you 13 of the most penetrating questions in the Bible. These are just 13. So please understand, we're, we're not looking at this comprehensively. We're just taking an aerial view of these 3,300 questions in the Bible. Take a look at some of these. Number one, did God really say? Genesis chapter three, verse one. That is the first question ever asked in the Bible. Followed pretty closely with this one. Where are you? That's found in Genesis chapter three, verse nine. That is the first question God asks in the Bible. It is not the only question God asks, but it is the first question that he asked. Am I my brother's keeper? Genesis chapter 4 verse 9. If a man dies, shall he live again? Found in Job chapter 14 verse 14. Remember I said these are some of the most penetrating questions in all of the Bible? That is the most penetrating question in the Old Testament. Number five, how can a young man or a young person stay on the path of purity? Psalm chapter 119 verse 9. One of the most practical questions in all of scripture. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? That's one of the most unpopular questions in all of the Bible. A lot of folks would just like to cut that out. Take a look at number seven. What shall I then do with Jesus? Matthew chapter 27, verse 22. It's a question asked by Pilate of the crowd that was standing in front of him before the crucifixion. It's one of the most, most personal questions in all of scripture who do you say I am that's one of the most universal questions it's a question that every person will have to answer at some point who do you say I am the apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2 that the time will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when you do that is of the utmost importance if your knee bows and your tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord before your life ends on this earth, welcome to heaven. If you wait until after you die, well, you do the math. Number nine, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Found in Mark chapter eight. Brothers, what shall we do? Acts chapter two. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Romans chapter six. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 8. And number 13, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb 
to be born, found in John chapter 3. Well, I like that last one. As we look at the practical and the penetrating and the personal and the unpopular and all those other questions, this one, this one is really something. Look at it again one more time. Here it is. How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. That question was asked in the midst of one of the most popular conversations in all of history. Certainly one of the most popular conversations in all of Scripture, but I would offer one of the most popular conversations in all time. It's an incredible one. It takes place between Jesus and Nicodemus. I am sure that you are familiar with it. If you've never looked at it, join me in John chapter 3. We're going to take a look at the entire conversation this morning. But before we can get into it, we have to recognize where it all began. That's the mistake a lot of people make with John chapter 3. They just jump right into that chapter believing that it stands by itself. And in many ways it does. But if you want to know the foundation on which it stands, you have to back up just a little bit. John chapter 2 ends like this, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The questions that Nicodemus is about to ask in John chapter 3 began right there. He'd seen Jesus perform signs and wonders and miracles, and those things captured his attention. He couldn't reconcile all of it in his heart and mind. He was unsettled by what he had seen, Isaiah would say. So he went to the Lord seeking to settle the matter. It all began in John chapter 3 with what he saw, but it led to a conversation that would eventually change his life. So when you understand the foundation of it, the standalone portions of John chapter 3 begin to make a little more sense. Let's just jump into that now. John 3 verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Well, let's stop there. We didn't make it very far. You got to understand a few things out of that as well. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There's a lot of stuff for us to understand. Let's start with Pharisees. There's a pretty significant group of people that accepted a challenge last Sunday in church. I called it the 28-day challenge. It was simple. Just read through the four Gospels leading up to Christmas. If you started last Sunday, you'll end on Christmas Day, 28 days. And a lot of folks accepted the challenge and are almost through the Gospel of Matthew now. It's interesting to me that when we started early in the week, there were several people that contacted me wanting to know the differences between Pharisees and Sadducees, two different groups within the New Testament of Jewish people. You hear about them on a pretty regular basis as you go not only through the Gospels, but through the entire New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By the way, you won't hear about them in the Old Testament because both groups rose up during the intertestamental period, the time between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. That's where the Pharisees and the Sadducees came from. 
And there are some significant differences between the two groups. Even though they are both Jewish, even though they are both parts of the ruling class, there are some significant differences. Here's just a few highlights of that. The Sadducees hold only to the Old Testament Torah. They believe only in the Scriptures, while the Pharisees will believe in the Scriptures plus the oral traditions that were handed down through their faith, through their heritage. The Sadducees, they have no regard for the oral traditions. The Pharisees hold on to them very tightly. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. That's one of the biggest differences between the two groups, because the Pharisees do. The Sadducees believe that you live, you die, that's it. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection and the afterlife. If you grew up in Sunday school, you sang a song about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and when it came to the issue of the resurrection, and we saw the difference, the Pharisees believing in the resurrection, the Sadducees rejecting it, we would always end that by saying, that's why they are so... Sad, you see, there's a number of Sunday school people in here. There's other differences between them, like the Sadducees not believing in the supernatural and the unseen. Not at all. The Pharisees, however, believe in angels and demons in the spiritual realm. Huge difference between them. The Sadducees tended to be much wealthier than the Pharisees, and they sought out positions of power based on their wealth. Can you imagine something like that? Folks in politics, based on their wealth, seek, well, we'll just stop right there. The Sadducees were responsible for the high priesthood and the temple itself in Jerusalem. That's where their main focus was at. The Pharisees were connected to the working people, and their main influence was in the synagogues, in the surrounding communities. So the Pharisees oversaw the synagogues, and the Sadducees oversaw what happened at the temple. You might think of it like this. The Pharisees, because they were a ruling class of people, as were the Sadducees, not only over the Jewish folks, but over their entire territory, the Pharisees would be like district court. They were responsible for the things that happened in specific communities. The Pharisees were like the, or the, I'm sorry, the Sadducees were like the Supreme Court. They're the ones that people would appeal to. Now, there were other things that set them apart as well. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were interested in religion. They really were. The Sadducees were interested in politics. Big difference between them. Because of the divisions that existed between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they didn't come together very often. The division was, it was palpable. But from time to time, they did come together. Jesus brought them together, but not in the ways we would think. Together, they were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Let that soak in. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, together, were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That was his background. He was born into that. He was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Pharisee, he was a, a teacher of the law, and he was a part of the ruling class, the Bible says. So he was a prominent person among the Pharisees. When John chapter 3, verse 1 says that he was a part of the ruling group, the ruling class, means that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. There were two different Sanhedrins during the time of Jesus. There was the greater Sanhedrin, 
was made up of 71 different men. They were the lawmakers. It was the Senate, if you will. And then there was the Lesser Sanhedrin. It was made up of 23 different men. The Lesser Sanhedrin governed the synagogues. The Greater Sanhedrin governed the faith. So again, think of it as district court and the Supreme Court. Nicodemus was a part of the former. He was a part of the greater Sanhedrin. Because he was a Pharisee, because he was a teacher of the law, and because he was a part of the ruling class, Nicodemus was expected to have answers, not questions. But he had questions. And after he saw what Jesus had done, those questions were raging within him. And he needed some answers. So he came to Jesus under the cover of darkness to try to find what he was looking for. Pick up with me in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'll see that every time Nicodemus speaks, every time, it comes across as a question. There are only three times that Nicodemus opens his mouth, and each time it appears as a question. Let's walk back through them real fast. Starting in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I want to stop right there and remind you that scholars, when they're looking to put together those 3,300 questions of the Bible, their first ones are the first ones to tell you that it is a struggle in the absence of punctuation. This question actually fits in that category. It ends with a period, but by all appearances, it should have a question mark at the end of it. Listen again. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. When you back up and recognize where Nicodemus is coming from and you understand his background and his position, that is actually shaped up more as a question than a statement. 
So it fits in that category that we were talking about, that in the absence of punctuation, the translators and the editors are left to figure it out on their own. Well, in my estimation, that's a question more than a statement. That's Nicodemus saying, we know you're a teacher of the law. We know all this. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So that's where it all begins. Then question number two is found in verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then the third question is found in verse nine. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Now it is interesting in the study of questions when you get to realize that he actually asked three questions looking for different responses. And Jesus, because he knew Nicodemus, actually responded perfectly. So here's the pattern that you see. Question number one had Nicodemus asking a question looking for a teleological answer. Question number two had Nicodemus asking for a mechanistic answer. And question number three had him looking again for a teleological answer. Now, it may very well be that I just threw out a couple of terms that you're unfamiliar with, and let's, let's just level the playing field. Until Monday of this last week, so was I. I had never heard these two terms before, but as I was studying for this message, man, they got me, and I started chasing them in ways that I probably spent way too much time on. But here they are one more time. We'll put them up on the screen for you. Teleological and mechanistic. Now, get those firmly in your mind teleological and mechanistic. What I have discovered over the course of this week as I've been studying is that you can determine a lot about people based on how they ask questions. You can determine a lot about personality by determining whether they are looking for a teleological answer or a mechanistic answer. And if you see a pattern that begins to arise in the way they ask questions, then you begin to see exactly how they're made up. Now, I want to take you through some of the things that I was exploring this last week. The first part comes from an article I was reading in Scientific American. Listen to this. Humans are curious creatures, and our curiosity drives a search for explanations. But which explanation we are after often determines whether we find what we are looking for or not. Now again, that's something you have got to think on. So listen again. Humans are curious creatures, and our curiosity drives a search for explanations. But which explanation we are after often determines whether we find what we are looking for or not. Now, that's the first place that I went that launched my study of the teleological versus mechanistic pursuit of answers. I found myself in some really unique places. I'm going to show you one, but I will reserve the source until the end. Take a look at this as it explains the differences. There's good evidence that people have strong and systematic preferences for some types of explanations over others. For example, I found that people prefer explanations that provide a function or purpose called teleological explanations. If I ask, why does your cup have a handle? A teleological explanation might be, the cup has a handle so you can lift it without burning your fingers. 
In many cases, we're more attracted to teleological explanations than to mechanistic alternatives, such as explaining the cup's handle by going through the process that was used to manufacture that shape, mechanistic explanations. However, not everything has a function or purpose. Why are there mountains? Why are there rivers? Such entities simply won't support teleological explanations unless you're committed to an underlying designer such as God who designed then for some purpose. Wow. Wow. Now I know I've been thinking on this for a week and I just dropped it on you. I hope there's a point where the wow hits you. Follow the example out. We ask about the handle on a, a cup, a coffee cup. Well, a teleological answer being that that cup was created, it was formed, it was manufactured so that you could pick that cup up without burning your hand. That was a function, a purpose answer. Majority of people live in that realm and most of the questions that they ask are form and function questions. I wanna know why this handle is here. And that once I know, then I'm going to be perfectly happy. But every once in a while, you come across mechanistic-minded people that want to know how it was made. They aren't even remotely interested in the why or the form and the function or the purpose. They're looking solely for the how. How was this made? Spend much time around engineers or people with an engineering mind. You're going to have a lot of mechanistic questions that are asked. But the majority of people are teleological in their makeup. Tell me the, the purpose. I want to know why. I want to know why. The how doesn't really matter. I want to know why. And in regard to our spiritual life, the why is simply, how does this impact me? What does this mean to me? So in question number one in John chapter three, Nicodemus asks a teleological question. And Jesus, because he knows Nicodemus, knows that he's a thinker. He knows that he's familiar with the law. He knows that he's familiar with messianic prophecy. He knows all those things that we just learned about him. He gives him a teleological answer. And then he asks a mechanistic question because the teleological answer didn't make sense to him. So he asks a mechanistic question trying to get a little deeper into the answer. And Jesus answers with a mechanistic answer. But then it comes back to the teleological. He wants to know how this can be. What's this mean to me? What is this going to do to me if I accept this? Oh, it's, a, it's an incredible exploration. Now, if you're still looking at this slide that's up on the screen, you see a, a word that is highlighted. Now, I have to tell you that that word has caused a, a couple of us, actually three of us, to stumble this last week. Because when I first read this, I found myself saying that has to be a misprint. The word has to be them, not then. So when I first copied it, I changed the word. But I kept looking at it thinking to myself, that, that's not right. That's not a misprint. This is the way this quote is to read. I sent it off to Beth to get ready for today and, and she wanted to change it as well. And then she doubled back and looked at it and said, that is not a misprint. And she then sent it to Chelsea Sanderson, who is upstairs right now, and Chelsea changed the word. 
So this morning we got here and we're reading this and we're like, well, well hold it, now something's, something's not right. Because she read it and said that has to be a misprint. So she changed it to them. It isn't them, it is then. Look at it through that lens. So we'll start back here. Why are there rivers? Such entities simply won't support teleological explanations unless you're committed to an underlying designer such as God who designed then for some purpose speaks of a lot more than mountains and rivers. It speaks of how God designed everything for a purpose. Teleological answers point us to that. You wanna know the source for this? This is so curious to me. University of California, Berkeley, one of their professors in 2021 published this article and all of the research associated with it. University of California, Berkeley. And I had to then push back and say, I have painted with a broad brush that particular university, and it was not with a good one. And the voice of the Lord is speaking at the University of California, Berkeley, as there is a professor there publishing works that help people understand that God designed then for a purpose. It wasn't accidental. This didn't just happen. God designed then for a purpose. I cannot help but wonder how many hearts and minds were open to the things of God, particularly his son Jesus, by this professor at Berkeley, through things like this, that capture the thinking mind to understand that when we ask teleological questions, questions that help us understand purpose, we will be directed back to the Lord. And that was Nicodemus. That was Nicodemus. He was understanding something that maybe had been foreign to him prior to this. So interesting to me that Jesus would speak to him from the supernatural. He would talk about heaven, something that the Sadducees didn't accept, but he knew Nicodemus as a Pharisee would. So he spoke of what had come from heaven. And he showed him the teleological, and he showed him the mechanistic, and he showed him the teleological to get through to him. And do you know what was happening in the midst of this entire conversation? Jesus was showing us how to shape our own question-asking process. Something that he would talk about in other places in the Bible. Keep your finger there in John chapter 3, but flip back to the Gospel of Matthew with me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Again, these are Jesus' words, and if you lay John chapter 3 over it, you can see how serious he is about it. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to him who asks? There is a three-part approach to how we ask questions of the Lord. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. Say it with me. Ask, seek, knock. Let's do it again. Ask, seek, knock. Three different ways to ask questions of God. Asking is simply bringing before the Lord the things we're curious about. 
Now remember, we started out by saying that a lot of people believe that asking God questions is wrong. It's not. Don't you ever believe anybody that's told you that God does not want you to ask questions. You ask, and you ask boldly. If you're curious about something, if you are confused about something, if something doesn't make sense for you and you can't reconcile it in your mind, you ask. You bring it before God. And then just get quiet. Wait for the answer. Open up your Bible as the Spirit directs you to do that and look for the answers. And you may find exactly what you're looking for in that first stop. But if you don't, then go to the next one. Seek. When we choose to seek, we are looking to learn more about what we have been curious about. When you are seeking, you're trying to go deeper. So you may have already found an answer, but you want to understand it at a deeper level. Maybe you discovered the teleological answer, but you need the mechanistic to help you really process it. Get to seeking. People that seek are often looking for mechanistic answers. And then there's this third step. This one is, is really interesting. Knock. Ask, seek, knock. Remember those here? Let's say them together again. Ask, seek, knock. That's how we are to ask questions or bring questions before the Lord. The knocking happens when we're at a crossroads. We don't know what to do. Well, Jesus says, then come knocking. You come knocking. You may have already asked and you may have already sought, but you're still standing at that crossroads unsure of what to do, even in salvation, unsure of whether to give your life to the Lord, believing that his son Jesus came and died for you, that your sins might be forgiven, that your debt might be canceled, as Dini said a little earlier. Maybe that's, that's just too difficult for you, and so you've asked questions about it. And you've even been seeking to understand it at a deeper level, but you're still not at a place to make that decision. Then you get to knocking. You get to knocking. And listen to what God has to say when he opens the door. Because the Bible holds this promise in it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Again, Jesus' words, he's knocking on the other side of the door. Open the door. Open the door and let him come in. That the two of you can sit down and have a conversation together. Have a meal with one another. Jesus is knocking on the other side of the door. Knock back until the door gets opened. If you're at a crossroads, you knock. You knock. When we are seeking to settle the matter, asking, seeking, and knocking will help us accomplish that. Let it reshape your prayer life. You ask you seek, you knock. This year as we come in towards Christmas, I want to encourage you to do all three. Ask, seek, knock, that you might settle the matter. It worked for Nicodemus. You know how many times Nicodemus shows up in the Bible? Anybody want to guess? Three. Three times. First time that he shows up is right here in John chapter three. He comes under the cover of darkness because he's a Pharisee member of the Sanhedrin. He's confused. He came and he asked, and he was seeking. And I would offer to you that by the end of it, he was even knocking. And his life began changing right there. The next time Nicodemus shows up, it's pretty cool. It's in the light. He stands up in front of the Sanhedrin, and he says, hey, give him a chance. He shows up defending Jesus doesn't completely reveal yet 
that he's a believer. But he shows up defending Jesus. The third time he shows up, his life is completely changed. I'll show it to you. Let's go to the Gospel of John together. John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, now I want to point something out to you here. You won't see this in John's gospel. You'll find it in Matthew. Joseph was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, see the difference? He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Joseph had become a believer. He was a disciple. He resigned his position with the Sanhedrin to become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus has died on the cross. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And Nicodemus did the same. Right there in that moment, he resigned from the Sanhedrin and said, I am a follower of Jesus. All because he was willing to ask questions. All because he was willing to seek answers. All because he was willing to knock. Because he was at a crossroads. But now, in John 19, the matter of Jesus is settled for him. It's finished. And his life would never be the same. Everything changed for him. And that's what Jesus does for us. Oftentimes, it begins with questions. My friends, ask those questions. Three ways to do it. Ask, seek, knock. Let it reshape how you approach the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Nicodemus' story and what he has to show us. Pray, Lord, that we will learn from this bold man to ask questions of you, to seek the answers that we need personally in the way that we need them, that we can be settled on who you are. Father, I pray for those this morning that are unsettled. Would you not let them leave here that way today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.